If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, welcome back to Considering Catholicism. I'm once again here with Corey Licatos. Hello. Uh, we are in the midst of a little series that we're doing on the barriers or hurdles or hesitations that people have about the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And that a lot of people may be attracted to Catholicism because of the doctrine, because of the architecture, because of this, that. But a lot of times there are these sort of barriers they have to get past, even though they're attracted. And in the last episode, we talked about cultural barriers, mm -hmm. that a lot of times, even if you find Catholicism attractive because of the truth or the goodness or the beauty, there's also just... It's there's all those icky people. Well, yeah, and it's a subculture, and do. it can feel foreign, <laughs> and it can feel mm -hmm. just different. And, and for a lot of people, they like the idea of it, but it's just, yeah, they have to yeah. go through that. So we, we sort of dealt with that in the last one. And today, we're going to talk about a different kind of barrier, and that's the sort of... <laughs> Catholic history barrier. Mm -hmm. Now, let, let me say this. There's a lot of Protestants I know who are actually, like I was, like you were, that are actually attracted to Catholicism because of the history of Catholicism, mm -hmm. right? All of the... Sure. Yeah, that can be a positive for a lot of people. Oh, my was goodness. All the glories of Catholic history. But alongside all the glories, there are some low moments or some perceived low moments. Mm -hmm. And so just as many people who say, I'm excited about... Catholicism because of the cathedrals and the this and the that. So other people like the, the crusades were terrible and the this and that. And you'll get into those in a second. Mm -hmm. But their objection is the historical points in which the Catholic Church that were not its best moments. Mm -hmm. And those to some degree become barriers, right? Yeah, absolutely. So why don't you talk about what some of those common historical barriers are? some people have yeah i mean the, the list that you construct will vary a little bit depending on your perspective and and what you think is and isn't a, a low point uh in in the history of the church but the obvious ones that i think come up a lot would be things like the crusades in which the church was involved in an, an armed series of armed conflicts or say the the inquisition there's several inquisitions not just the spanish one but pe this judicial structure framework that the church was involved in that has a lot of bad things said about it we can get into various things what to what degree the things that are said are true and are not so there's the things like the inquisition there's things like galileo and perceived slights against science and modernity there are a series of bad popes especially from the middle ages that did a lot of things that are i mean undeniably bad and so those come up a lot 
and then there are more recent things that we can get into later but th- that's kind of the if you're going to list off three or four things right off the bat that people yeah. come up with those are the ones well and i'd throw a few more logs on the bonfire too mm-hmm. right so you have a lot of these things whether they're myths or not myths i guess we'll get into in a second mm-hmm. about what your response is but you know the catholic church has always been backward it repressed they caused the dark ages yeah some of it those general people, or broad kept people things. illiterate it's not the, like a specific instance or event yeah, but it's the, yeah the, concept the monks were drunk there were secret tunnels between the monastery and the convent so that the monks could rape the nuns there was this there was that or there accusations was, of, of jesuits getting involved in undercover um, politics and uh, things you know and, the yeah. conquistadors came over and yeah destroyed, the, you know, the, the era yeah, of colonization certainly et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. and you can go on this really long list in fact for the last 2000 years even since the time of jesus with the romans mm-hmm. there have been accusations about the church persistently for 2000 years. oh sure so we could we could do an endless long list i'll tell you if you want to draw all that out post a post a video on youtube uh, talking about the glories of catholicism which i have done and then read your 500 comments from everybody who just unloads on you about all the bad things that the church has done for the last hundred mm. or two thousand years and so there's no shortage of those things Let, let's talk though about how we respond to them mm-hmm. right now some of the ones that you mentioned a lot of us who work in the field of evangelization or apologetics or whatever, we've responded to these things. So we've done episodes about Galileo. Mm-hmm. We've done episodes about the Crusades. I think that our, the responses of Catholic apologists or evangelists often get grouped into a couple of things, right? Yeah. So let's consider like one possible response when someone brings something up. So let's say you bring up charge x against the church the mm-hmm. crusades the this the that the dark ages the yada 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 galileo option one is to say x isn't true it never happened mm-hmm. right that's just a myth it never happened it didn't happen the way you say it happened right so that's one thing and we've done some of that we did an episode on the crusades where i said look most of what you think about the crusades isn't true We've done an episode on Galileo where we said most of what you think about Galileo simply isn't true. Yeah, and and that comes from not just historical ignorance, but a lot of active uh, campaign to to slur the church. Yeah, that's that's a good word for it. Anti-church propaganda, and it's always been there. So, But one response is to say X isn't true. Another response from our side to those accusations is often, well, okay, X might be true but others did it worse sure so you'll say okay yeah i mean the catholic church did x but you know the protestants did it worse or secular governments did it worse or which isn't to excuse the church but it's it's essentially trying to it's a rhetorical device to say well yeah but we're the best that there is i guess (laughs) well Okay, it's a non-unique charge. The slang word today is whataboutism. Sure. So you just go, well, that's whataboutism, right? right. So you the say- The Catholics did this, but what about? But what about so-and-so and so-and-so? And, and, and a lot of times that's, it's true. It's not necessarily going to convince anybody. It, it's not necessarily helpful in every case. I mean, it can be good for forming perspective that the church might not be uniquely evil, but it doesn't excuse any evil that, that was done. Right. Okay. So one response from our side to these accusations is to say X isn't true. The other one is to say X, well, it might be true, but others did it worse. 
a third response might be to say, well, okay, X is true, but the church also did Y, like the letter Y, mm-hmm. and and Y, they did more Y than X. Right, on the balance. On the balance. So you say, well, okay, maybe the English monasteries did some bad things, but they did more good things than they did bad things, so on balance, it, it works out. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times that is true, right? Because we're all going to have shortcomings. I can I could say the same thing about myself or you or people in my life. A friend of mine has these negative qualities, but they have more positive qualities than negative qualities. Sure, sure. And so on balance, I they're my friend, right? There. Yeah, That's, this is essentially writing up a pro and con list and saying, oh, well, the pro list seems to be longer or have larger items in it. Yeah. And when it comes to the Catholic Church, though, mm-hmm. people will say, well, that's why well, you can't dismiss these things. But the reality is that's the way we look at everything. The way we judge things is to sometimes take them in their totality. Mm-hmm. But I get when someone says, yeah, but you can't just dismiss evil that way. Mm-hmm. So if I say, well, my friend Bob, he's a good guy and he has many positive qualities, but on the other hand, he robs liquor stores. He's an axe murderer. Yeah, on the other hand, he has, <laughs> he has bodies buried in his crawl space under his house. And it's like, but on balance, he's a pretty nice guy, right? I mean, there's certain things that are just kind of like inexcusable that you can't balance them out, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. And I get that some people think that about the Catholic Church. Here's another one is you'll the catholic apologist might say well okay the x is kind of true but like on look we're doing the best we can it's full of fallible people and fallible people are going to do fallible things and i mean what do you expect you can't expect perfection from the church mm-hmm. and i think that one is a little bit telling because i do think we, we we say that and there's some truth to it because of course the church is made up of fallible, sinful human beings, right? And mm-hmm. it's, they're not going to be perfect. But I think you can over-rely on that and kind of treat it as a shoulder shrug. Well, you can treat it as an excuse for for laxity or, or for, yeah, exactly, just shrugging things off. Because it it is true that the church is made up of fallible people and therefore true that the church and individuals in the church are going to do bad things. But that makes it worse when they do because they're the church they're the body of christ i mean um, look, look at look at that it's more s- scandalous well maybe that is the best they can do but maybe they should be doing better right i mean so i think just lowering standards and saying what do you expect in certain contexts that might make sense but it's not a great response to always just mm-hmm. go hey what do you expect right so i think that's the range of things and i think that there's some truth to all of them and a lot of times given whatever the thing is about Catholicism that you are stuck on, whatever you think it is, whether it's the science thing or the dark ages or the conquistadors or whatever, we can go through one by one and sort of... For each of those is its own discussion. And we can kind of apply some of these things that we just mentioned to them. But I I think we have to come to some point where we look at the totality of it. Mm -hmm. And we do have to admit that there is a paradox not contradiction about the church yeah people may have heard this before so hilaire belloc who was a friend of chesterton who we've talked about quite a bit and was in politics in his day and and was a catholic in in a time in england where wasn't very popular to be one came to the defense of the church in this way and he said that yes the church is bad in all these ways has done bad things but 
if any other organization had been run with such knavish imbecility, it wouldn't have lasted a fortnight. It wouldn't have lasted two weeks. And and there, what he's getting at is the, the paradox or the tension between the divine and the human nature of the church. And so the church is divine. It is the body of Christ. There's the, the saints and angels in heaven. We, we say that it's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's a holy church. And yet it is also human, and we, and you and me and all the people throughout history are its members, and we are still sinners, and we have and do continue to do a lot of bad things. And that's the knavish imbecility that he talks about, which is evident throughout the history of the church. But it continues. We see God's providence keep sustaining the church and keeping it going and allowing it to continue to bring God's grace into the world. Two things about that block quote that mm-hmm. I want to kind of camp on for a second. Yeah, yeah. First, there are, it's hard for me as somebody who writes for a living and wordsmiths, and you mm-hmm. do the same, to find a better combination of two words. Oh, yes. It's, it's that superb. Des- that describe <laughs> much of the paradox of the Catholic Church mm-hmm. better than the two words, knavish imbecility. Mm-hmm. And when you look at his quote, there's a context or a bigger context saying the sentence that precedes that quote is something to the effect of, I don't have it in front of me, but he says, I am bound to believe that the church is divine and the proof of its divinity is that nothing, no merely human organization, if it was not divine, no merely human organization run with such knavish imbecility could have lasted two weeks. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it has lasted 2,000 years only goes to prove that it's divine. It would be Goofed impossible up. otherwise. Yeah. Well, I we, mean, we've seen millions of such organizations rise and fall. Yeah. And, and so whatever you want to draw attention to in Catholic history— some of those things that you want to bring up, the Galileo thing, you go, that's just a myth. It just isn't true. We did a whole episode on it. Mm-hmm. Dear listener, go back and, and listen why. Basically, the whole Galileo thing is, is a myth. There are other things that weren't myths, and there were things that the church has done wrong. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of them it did badly. And some of them were wrong, like in the sense of being like morally wrong, and some of them were just inept, knavish imbecility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, both sin and incompetence. Yeah, right. Well, there's another line from somebody that says, some of the effect of never attribute to malice what can be described by yeah. incompetence. Incompetence, yes, yeah, sort of Occam's razor yeah, approach. Yeah, Occam's razor to- approach. It's like, <laughs> well, it, they, it could be a conspiracy, or maybe they're just idiots. They're just idiots. <laughs> right, and I mean, a lot of ways, that's any of us who've worked with in, in church, you know, a lot of times it may be a conspiracy, but it could be they're just idiots. Mm-hmm. The, the, the people in charge just aren't as good at this <laughs> as you think. But the paradox that Balak gets at mm-hmm. is that if that's all the church was was a human institution it, it there's no way that it 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 survives 20 centuries 24 time zones mm-hmm. two hemispheres every race tribe nation and language it just it just doesn't because as you pointed out a minute ago we can look at thousands and thousands and thousands of empires and nations and companies and, and organizations and religions that yeah. rise and fall and collapse under their the weight of their own incompetence or imbecility but for some reason 
this thing keeps going and all the mistakes and all of the things that the church has done wrong in and of themselves are proof of its divinity Mm -hmm. because there's no other explanation for why it still stands. And that's not going to convince the atheist Mm -hmm. of anything, but I find it convincing. So that kind of brings us up to the present. And what I would say to anyone is if there's any one of those particular things, if you're hung up on Galileo, listen to the Galileo episode. If you're hung up on the Inquisition, or if you're hung up on this or that, we can take those on one at a time. But I do want to bring it up to the present because it's not just those historical things. The historical things in some sense become, I don't want to say they're abstractions, but there's things to sort of banter about. There's a certain distance between them and our lived experience. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's enough distance that we can talk about things a thousand years ago or 500 years ago and, and banter about them. If it was only stuff that was 500 years ago, that would be one thing. What we have to deal with is the knavish imbecility in today's headlines. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some of that goes even beyond knavish imbecility to downright immoral and scandalous behavior and egregious sin, inexcusable sinful wickedness. Yeah. Okay, so where I'm going with this is, in particular, in the last number of decades, what's come out are the priest abuse scandals or the clergy abuse scandals. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to minimize that because we can banter about the Crusades and Galileo all day long. Like you said, it has historical distance. But when we start talking about father so-and-so abused kids or bishop so-and-so abuse kids or bishop so-and-so covered for father such and such or cardinal so-and-so abused children or adults or pope so-and-so covered for cardinal so-and-so and there was financial shenanigans involved too with church funds or vatican funds i would say that some of the things we said earlier about them you have to say in some cases this true is it not true and you can make these defenses that we mentioned earlier about historical things but they sound really weak when you say them about contemporary things yeah and and they can't do anything about the pain and the the scandal that people feel about these things which is legitimate let's just take a couple of this things on like in terms of our responses like basically what i'm not going to do in the next 10 minutes is go through the priest scandals on this mm-hmm. episode but let's just talk about scandal yeah. in general yeah. and these kinds of things today financial scandals sexual scandals all these things the reason we had the big elaborate setup about the historical stuff is it's one thing to argue about whether english monasteries in the 14th century <laughs> on balance were good or bad for the people of England. You can't get away with that by saying, well, Bishop so-and-so or a Cardinal so-and-so or Father such-and-such in his parish, yeah, he did abuse a few kids, but, you know, on balance, Mm -hmm. the parish did some good things. I don't want to be the guy saying that, Right. right? Because it may even be true to some extent, but there's no excuse. It's not a helpful statement. But doesn't get you very far in terms of persuading people or overcoming their emotions is to say, well, it's true that some priests abused some kids, but if you look at the percentage of priests that abused kids, 
it's lower than the percentage of teachers or cops or doctors that abuse patients or students or whatever. Mm. And that is statistically true. But it's like, hey, you're safer with a Catholic with a Catholic priest than you are with. But a you're saying teacher. there's still a risk, <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> yeah. right? But that's no good. So this is a hard, hard thing that I guess I'm speaking real slowly because we have to inch our way to the point where we have to say, how do we talk to these people? I know a, a guy who credo Catholic contributed a lot, very involved in a lot of ways with the church, who a few years ago just stopped going to the Catholic church, just won't go, and knows what I do, and and we talk, and he's like, I, I think what you're doing is, is, is fine and all that. He goes, but I'm just not going back to the Catholic church. And he said, look, I guess got to tell you, you're, you're trying to do this considering Catholicism thing. And he goes, I, I'm, I hope it goes well for you. But man, you're uphill and into the wind on this thing. He goes, and this is what he said to me. He goes, man, the Catholic Church has a terrible brand because people hear Catholic Church and Catholic priest, and all they think of is child molester. Yeah. They think people stealing money, abusing money, and molesting kids. And he said, you do these podcasts and you talk about Catholic priests and you want to portray all of these bright, helpful, wonderful servants of God and all that. He goes, but a lot of people just think of a creepy old dude molesting kids. Now, when he said that to me, do I think he's right? No and yes. No, it's not right that all Catholic priests are molesters or that the church is nothing but scandals and molestation. That's, that's not true. That's why I went through that list of things. Right, right. That's not true. But here's the thing that is true that I can't get away from. When you talk about a brand, that's perceptions. Right. And what he's talking about is his perceptions, and truthfully, it is the perception of a, a lot of people. It is, yeah. A lot of people in the United States, a lot of people in Europe, a lot of people just have this perception. And if a brand is what people think about you, then... The church has an enormous amount of baggage associated with the things it's done in the past or is perceived to have done in the past mm -hmm. and the things that it is perceived to still be doing today. Yes. So, Corey, how do you respond? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the first thing which we've alluded to before now is just to recognize that it's legitimate for people to feel scandalized and hurt by evils that the church has committed or that people in the church has committed. We don't want to deny the legitimacy of that. We, we can't excuse the behavior. We're, we're Christians. We're supposed to be living as Christ commanded us to. And when we fail, it's, it's not only just bad in and of itself, it's worse than if somebody else did, because we're supposed to, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We are supposed to be bringing Christ and his grace to the world and and we're failing on that the the corruption of the good is is the worst as the phrase, phrase goes so we need to recognize that and not try to explain away people's emotions or, or t tell them to calm down or, or whatnot that's all legitimate at the same time i come back to the fact that if if we believe that the, the basic truths of the catholic faith which i do that jesus christ is is god and has come to redeem the world and is doing that through his church then I come back to what St. Peter said when 
many of the disciples were leaving Christ. It's it's in John chapter 6 when he had his discourse about the Eucharist and about eating his flesh and blood. Many of his disciples left, and he turned to the apostles and said, are you going to leave too? And Peter said, where would we go? You have the words of everlasting life. And and I think that's the case with the church, which is under the successor of Peter, is that where would we go? If we, if we believe in Christ, then this this is the boat to be in. I don't think you're going to escape from this by going to be Protestant or going to be Orthodox or, or whatnot. You're certainly not going to escape from the evil in your own heart by doing that. You're not going to escape from the evil in other people's hearts by doing that. Where else would, would we go? And I know that's not there's no answer that's going to be ultimately emotionally satisfying for someone who has been been hurt and scandalized. But but that's how I think of it and approach it. I mean, this topic just opens such a huge can of worms. You're exactly right about the response of Peter in John 6. As you say, that came at a moment of perceived scandal when the people turned away from Jesus about the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the crowds left him. And as you described, Jesus asks whether the apostles would leave as well. And when Peter said, where else would we go? Mm-hmm. You have the words of life. He, he was also saying in that context, where else would we go that has this sacrament? And it comes down to a number of things for me. One is, I'm not Catholic, and I don't come to the church for father so-and-so. I don't come to the church for bishop so-and-so. I don't come to the church because of my parish priest. I don't come to the church. I'm not at the church. I'm not in the church because of my bishop. I'm not in my church or at the church or come to church or go to mass because of cardinal so-and-so. And I'm not even in the church because of the Pope. I'm in the church and I come to the church and I go to mass for Jesus Christ and for his body and his blood and his teachings and his word, which were given as the word of God, right? In his body, in his blood, in his scriptures, in the teachings of his apostles. And I'm in the church because it is the thing that that transmits and preserves and carries and delivers those to me. And, and I think that's the important point there, because where you don't want to go with that is, to, is sort of the just, it's Jesus and me kind of philosophy, which, which would discount the legitimate role of the priest or the bishop or the pope. And I know that's not what you're saying. No. And, and so the, the Eucharist and the other sacraments and the graces of the church, graces of Christ, come to us through the church. And that's why we're here, and that that's why the the parish or the priest or the bishop or whatnot is important and legitimate, but not in and of himself. They, they in, are in their particular. They, they, okay, so right, the clergy are means to an end, mm-hmm. not as persons. Of course, persons are ends in themselves. Well, but no, yeah, but yeah. The, their offices are means right, to an exactly. end. Right. I mean, their offices are means to an end. The reason you have a, a, a priest is so that you can have the sacraments. Mm-hmm. The reason you have a bishop is so you can make priests, right. right? And the reason you have a pope is to is to preserve the teaching and to make bishops, mm-hmm. right? But 
the purpose of the church is not to have priests and bishops and popes. Right. They for the, serve the mission of the, the church. Right. Yeah. I mean, think of like one of those Roman aqueducts that served a city in Spain or something, and it brings the water from 75 miles away. Mm-hmm. All of those beautiful towers and bridges and things that they have for the aqueducts are there to bring the fresh water from the spring up on the mountain down to the, to the piazza in the, in the city so people can drink. Mm-hmm. The Romans didn't build the aqueducts and those beautiful bridges and stuff over the canyons that, you know, just f- because mm-hmm. they were there as a means to deliver the life-giving water. And when we look at the clergy and the structures of the church, it's there to deliver the living water. It's there to deliver the life-giving b- bread of life. It's there to deliver Christ's word, Christ's word being his body, his, his presence, his, his scriptures, right? His teachings, all the new different ways that the bread of life and the living water are delivered to us. Mm-hmm. And now, if you looked at that Roman aqueduct and you said, wow, some of the tiles are falling off it and there's parts where it's damaged and there's parts where there's like gunk has gotten into the aqueduct, tree limbs and this and that and clogged up parts of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, the response is to clean the aqueduct, okay, not to get rid of it, right, or, or to re- say repair it, yeah, or to say we don't need an aqueduct, right, which mm-hmm. is sort of your Protestant or evangelical response. It's just me and the Bible, right. I remember when there was a big round of priest abuse scandals right around the time that I was entering the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and I think you, you entered at the same time I yeah, did, yeah. and there was this huge thing and. I remember at that time, like the attorney general of several attorneys generals of several states were filing lawsuits and all this stuff, doing these investigations. And I remember having friends ask me, why are you joining the Catholic Church with all this going on? And I mean, these priests and bishops and whatever, maybe popes or whatever, who are doing these bad things. And why wouldn't you want to do, well, you just should do away with them, stay Protestant. And I said, I don't want to, get rid of priests and bishops and popes and the structures of the church any more than I would want to get rid of the structures of the aqueduct, right? Mm. I want to insist on better priests, better bishops, and better popes. In other words, the infrastructure that God has set up, and because God built the aqueduct. Christ built mm-hmm. the aqueduct. That's the point. We didn't build it. Christ built the aqueduct to bring the life-giving water from the mountain spring down to the city 75 miles away, mm-hmm. right, to the people. Yeah. And that was Christ who set the aqueduct up. It's ours to maintain it and to repair it. And that's why when we see a priest or a bishop or a pope even who abuses their office, says or does bad things, I think, first of all, we are right to and are obligated to demand better. In fact, we're, I mean, that's in canon law. We have canonical rights to demand better. Right. Yeah. And so I think it's right of the laity mm-hmm. to demand that we have better priests and that we have higher standards of accountability. I think it's right of our laity to push back against our bishops about certain things, right? It's not our right to challenge apostolic teaching. Mm-hmm. But it is our very right to say you run your diocese in a very na- in, 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 with knavish imbecility or, or malicious whatever, and I'm not going to give money to 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 the or whatever you're going to do. You got to push back. The bishops need to hear that, and I think that with some of the scandals in the Vatican. I think the Vatican needs to hear again. It's not our place. Like we're not Protestants. We're not going to vote on apostolic teaching. 
mm-hmm. doctrinal authority, but we we do have a right to demand that scandals cease. Well, it's a matter of charity towards the very priests and, and bishops that we're talking about. I mean, to, to demand and, and to to exhort them to be holy and to, to be better and to care for the people, to care for the flock the way that they ought to, that, that Christ has commissioned them to. Yeah, so I think that the Catholic laity are well in their rights, and that's where it gets confusing because d- doctrine isn't a democracy. We don't vote on what's true. But I think we we do have a right to demand that the truth, I'm going to go back to my analogy of the aqueduct again, mm-hmm. that we come to the church for, for the life-giving water to be delivered from the spring 75 miles away up on the mountain down here to the, the fountain in the piazza. And that's why they're there. And if they're not going to do that, they need to get with the program. We aren't voting on the water. We're voting on the delivery system <laughs> for the water. And we're right to ask and demand that they do it right. And so... I think I think I would say to anybody who is either considering Catholicism or is a Catholic, you, you have to find that place where you say, I'm, I recognize the flaws of this thing, and, and you have a right, I think, to speak out and be an activist, to, to demand that the church do what it is supposed to do and demand that the clergy and others in charge live up to what they're their vocation mm-hmm. and their responsibilities. Well, we have great examples in the saints for this. I mean, yeah. just one prominent example would be St. Catherine of Siena, oh, yeah. who went to the Pope and told him this arm-length list of things that he's doing wrong that he needs to shape fin- up. Shook her yeah. finger in his f- face and told that Yeah, I mean, for the, we'll maybe shoot an episode on that sometime, because for 75 years, the papacy had moved to France, mm-hmm. to Avignon, France, had left Rome. And so the Pope is hanging out in a palace in France for 75 years, a sequence of popes. And St. Catherine of Siena says, this is ridiculous. The Pope is the Bishop of Rome. He has his responsibilities, and he's abdicating his responsibilities, living it up in a big French palace. She walked barefoot or whatever all the way from Siena, Italy, to to Avignon, France, stuck her finger in the Pope's face and said, and before her, St. Francis of Assisi demanded— Or or St. Hildegard. Yeah, yeah, there's no end of examples, really. St. Francis of Assisi demanded reform of the church. St. Francis Xavier Cabrini, Mother Cabrini, she she was pretty vocal about the, the church and the bishops weren't getting things done, and she was just going to take it in her own hands to get things done. So, look, I mean, we can go through all that list. I want to I want to land this here with a bit of spiritual reflection about it all, because at some point, if you just descend into the back and forth about historical things or current events or scandal or who did what, who's responsible for what, what needs to be fixed, there's got to be an ultimate spiritual perspective on it. Mm-hmm. It is inherent in the relationship of fallen creatures with their perfect creator to be in this tension between the best parts of their nature and the worst parts of their nature, especially in the context of a world in which we are tempted by and assaulted by Satan and the fallen demons who try to undo what the church does. I mean, we've done episodes about this, did one recently, right? I mean, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion trying Mm -hmm. to undo the church. Scripture predicts this all the time. And that goes to when Adam and Eve fell, right? From that moment when they were tempted by the serpent. And then you go through the whole sequence of scripture and you look at Israel. The very word Israel comes from Jacob was renamed Israel and in Hebrew it's Israel. 
It means the, the one who wrestles with God. The whole story of Israel was God's people who were stubborn and wicked, who apostatized and who abused the spiritual gifts of God. That was the entire sequence and story of Israel. And it comes to fruition in Christ, and he points sort of a new Israel. But even in the new Israel, you have Judas, I mean, one of the 12 apostles, and Judas falls away. And then we see up to that to now, and not just organization, but in our own lives, that there is this tension. And so it's not a surprise that there is that tension in the life of the church. That doesn't excuse any individual priest or bishop or pope who did bad things. But when you look at it in its totality, it's not surprising that there is that that spiritual tension. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you say, in any individual, and I should be thankful that God allows me to be a part of this and that the, the church has a place for me. I, I certainly am part of that Navishim facility myself. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. is, It's a one thing to talk about the church and point at Father so-and-so or Bishop such-and-such or Cardinal so-and-so. But when, if, we, if you just made this about me and, and, and if you looked at my life and you said, well, where are your sins? Do, do I try to do some good things in my life? Do I try to live up to the new life of Christ in me? Paul says to live by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Do I have some fruits of the Spirit in my life? Yeah. Do I have some fruits of the, the fallen nature in me? Yeah. Do I have sins in my life? Yeah. And so why wouldn't the larger reality, the, the corporate reality of all us together in the church not reflect those same kinds of tensions that I have in my own life? In the church, because of her relationship with Christ, there is forgiveness for these things, and there's redemption, and there's, there's in the fullness of time when, when Christ returns, the making right of these things. And out, outside of the church, you just have the sins without the grace and without the redemption. But those times were often accompanied by times of repentance and revival within the church and reformation. Mm-hmm. I know we're getting a little bit long here, but you know, we mentioned some of the saints. You mentioned Catherine of Siena. Well, it isn't just that she went and shook her finger at the Pope and gave him a list. It's then the the Reformation and revival that came from that. Mm-hmm. Or go back to St. Francis of Assisi. I mean, one of the things that's always struck me about the Protestant Reformation is that some of the exact same abuses oh, yeah. that the Protestant reformers were that Luther pointed to were going on in St. Francis's day. He went down to Rome and was scandalized by the things he saw. But St. Francis didn't seek to overturn the church to get rid of cardinals and popes and bishops and all that. He demanded a revival and a, a true reformation, returning it to it, its birthright, returning it to who it's supposed to be instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And that's why I think the Franciscan Reformation of the 13th century was a true reformation of the church, whereas the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century wasn't really a reformation. It was just simply a revolution. Yeah, but but I mean, that I think that also points out just the need to be realistic about this, because if there was a Franciscan Reformation in the 13th century and then there still was you know yeah. enough problems to incite what Martin Luther did and the rest of the Reformation a couple centuries later, then obviously the church is always going to be in need of Reformation and will always be in need of repentance and renewal until Christ returns. And that's why we need uh, God to send us saints. Mm. Uh, you and I have talked before, I, I think we're well due for another Marian apparition. <laughs> we need another Our Lady of Lords or something like that, or, or, and we need saints. We need saints that call the church to reformation and revival. 
but we also need that in our own lives. So anyway, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that anything that we say, if someone is really deeply hurt, that we're going to say here is going to fix that. But my hope is that for those who have some struggles with these things, that maybe some of the things we talked about today might plant some seed of a new perspective. Yeah, perspective is mostly what we've been on. Uh, ultimately, for people who have been hurt and scandalized, they have to bring it to the Lord, and he has to be the one who's able to to heal that. So in the third installment, next installment of this, we're going to talk about the doctrinal hurdles. But thank you, and thanks to listeners. Thank you again for listening considering Catholicism. A couple of things that I always ask for. Number one, would you like and subscribe to the podcast? That really helps us increase our visibility and reach more people would you go to the uh, website considering catholicism.com you can sign up for our contact form there you can send me a message there or send an email to considering catholicism.com love to hear your stories love to hear your comments love your questions so that we can take your questions on in future episodes and finally would you consider supporting the podcast so that we can uh, continue to reach more people and help more and more of them to consider Catholicism. So thanks, Corey. Thank you. Yeah.